So let's talk about your book. There are numerous photos of children wounded during the Israeli military assault, some of them with shrapnel wounds on their faces, bodies, kids who lost legs and limbs. You have photos of kids that have gaping holes in their backs because they were hit by bullets. You write in your book that what you witnessed last year was the worst you have ever seen. Can you talk about what you saw briefly and what was the end game for Israel? Why that attack was so consistently ferocious? They were attacking from the sea, from the air, and then they entered Gaza. Well, if you're going to have a more political and military analysis of that, I think you should uh, study the last book of Max Blumenthal, The 51-Day War. The we bri- interviewed him on yes, that. Yes, the brilliant uh, Ashkenazi Jew and his book. He's written the introduction to my book, yes. by the way, because he has more of an analytical angle at this question that you're, uh, that you're posing. It seemed from the position of Shifa that there was absolutely no end to the attacks on civilians. Uh, what you just described was pretty much what we saw, an endless current of injured, lots and lots of children. We have done a study, Shifa had almost 9,000 people coming to the hospital in 51 days. Almost 500 of them were dying or dead. It was the worst ever I have seen when it comes to brutality. We saw shrapnel injuries that we have never seen before, multiple ones. We saw, of course, burns. Uh, we saw uh, effects of the drone attacks. We saw the four uh, Bakker boys who had been playing soccer and, and playing uh, hide-and-seek on the beach. All four killed. Their three buddies uh, severely wounded. Um, it seemed to me that the Palestinian resistance this time was so organized and so efficient And bear in mind that 67 Israeli soldiers were killed. It's the highest number yeah. in many, many, many years, since 67, I think, actually. And um, it seems like uh, a lot of these attacks were pure revenge. It had no military meaning. U.S. Pentagon experts that looked at the arsenal of weaponry they used against the Shia, they actually said, these American military experts said that it had no military meaning. The only meaning of this massive bombardment on Sashaya must have been to kill as many people as possible. According to the UN report, the commission that investigated this last attack, the Israeli army used 522% more ammunition against Gaza than in 2009, five times more. For every Palestinian fighter that the Israeli army killed, they killed more than five civilians. So they killed five times more civilians than they killed fighters. And we saw this in Shifa. We saw an enormous amount of uh, injured people coming. Some of them, the Palestinian doctors could save. Some of them had to be left to die. We could have saved more lives had it not been for the siege, had it not been for the lack of equipment, had it not been for the lack of security of the hospital system. One more thing. This last attack... The Israeli army attacked the hospital and medical system more viciously than ever before. More than 50% of the hospitals were more or less damaged, and 60% of the primary healthcare clinics were more or less damaged, according to the UN report. So on the one hand, you had this incredible increase in demands 
on a healthcare system that was already forced on its knees by the siege and lack of resources. And on the other hand, you had in this ongoing mass casualty situation, you had massive attacks and destruction of the healthcare structures and, and hospitals and clinics in Gaza and killing of doctors, paramedics, nurses, and 47 ambulances being mm. uh, destroyed. So you packed a lot in there. So I just want to go sure. back a little and sort of filling some of the blanks. You, as you said, you and uh, your Palestinian colleagues treated some, I read, 11,000 wounded. That was the total number That's of wounded in Gaza, and there are many hospitals. The number so of, you got uh, 9,000. Close to 9,000 came to Shifa. So did the hospital have the capacity to tend to so many victims? As you said, because of the siege, there are restrictions on import of medicine and medical equipment. I had been in Gaza three weeks in June uh, because I was making a report for yeah, the UN. UN system on the condition of the healthcare system. And my report was very clear in its conclusions. This is a public healthcare system, a hospital system and a public sector that is totally on its knees as a result of the long-standing siege. Sewage systems, water supply, food supply, drug supply, disposables to the hospital, salaries to the staff, all of this was at zero level because of the siege. <laughs> and then came the attack. So, of course, the medical system in Gaza did not have the capacity to handle this massive influx of injured. I'm not sure if any hospital system in the world would have the capacity to turn around. And bear in mind that this is not a situation where the hospital has full capacity. They're lacking power, electricity. They're lacking, uh, you know, light. They're lacking the CT machine in Shifa was, was down because of lack of spare parts for a long time. We were lacking anesthesia drugs. We didn't have long-lasting local anesthetics. No patient was operated without proper surgical anesthesia, of course, but there is no doubt that uh, the operation of the hospital was extremely difficult. Had it not been for the capacity of the Palestinian healthcare workers to improvise, it would have collapsed. What do you mean by improvise? For example, we have an influx during the night of the Sashaya massacre, the 20th of July, around 400 patients came to Shifa, more or less wounded, a massive influx. The Shifa hospital has six operating rooms. Now we have 15 patients who need immediate surgery. What do they do? Well, they put an extra operating table in each room and then suddenly you have 12 instead of six. And then you take a few on the floor in the hallway and then you find some other room, you find a trolley, a normal lamp instead of an operating lamp. They improvise all the time. They are probably world champions in handling massive, disastrous medical situations with very, very limited resources. And they do their best. They have a very high moral. They have a very high medical standard. In this situation, they have managed to establish uh, renal transplantation programs at Shifa. In this extremely difficult situation, not under the war, not under uh, the attack, but in between. They have established open-heart surgery. They do that. So this is a very hardworking, extremely professional, academically-based, evidence-based medical community. If I can make one little reflection, it's always interesting to listen to people who say, no, we cannot have academic boycott of Israel. We have to have dialogue. 
In fact, Israel has imposed academic boycott of the Palestinian academia through the last at least 15 years. You are not allowed to travel to medical conventions, to med medical congresses. It's extremely difficult to do medical research. Palestinian doctors, professors, students are not allowed to travel. And just recently now, uh, a group of Palestinian trauma experts were denied entry Visa, in England. Yeah. So there is an active academic boycott going on against the Palestinians. Why should we not boycott the Israeli state institutions? Of course we should. I want to talk to you a little bit about your book and also what mm. you witnessed and what you wrote. And it sort of links to other conflicts, other wars. Um, that we are witnessing right now. Last year, the Israeli military directly and purposely attacked the children's hospital, as well as Al-Dorra and mm. Al-Aqsa hospital. And we have also seen direct attacks on hospitals in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Syria, for example. We have seen that. Why are hospitals now increasingly considered a legitimate military target? Number one, it is not legitimate. It is absolutely For forbidden. Them. Yeah, I know. In international law, strictly forbids the military attacks on hospitals, medical staff, and ambulances. They are holy places in international law. Why do these superpowers attack hospitals? Well, I think it is because these are the last institutions of hope. It is the place where you can seek asylum. It is the place where you can seek refuge. It is the place you can seek alleviation of your pain. It is the place you can take your injured child, your dying spouse, your grandfather, and you will be treated and helped. So to encourage the resistance, the hospitals and the medical system has always been important. The military, they know this. The military people, they know that without the military medical corps, the soldiers will not fight because they want to know that in case of injury, mm. they are taken care of. That is why the military medical corps is such an important part of an army. For the civilian population, the capacity, the willingness, the power to survive is linked to the hope of getting help if you are injured. And of course, if you destroy these symbols of hope, the ambulance, the hospital, the healthcare worker, people will feel totally helpless in many ways. Where should they go with their injured child if the hospital is gone? Who can protect them in a situation where nothing is holy anymore? So I think this is part of the psychological warfare. These hospitals have no direct military function, but they have a function in the popular understanding in the popular willingness, in the popular energy to resist. And what the Israelis are trying to do in Gaza and the West Bank, it is to break the backbone of the resistance of the Palestinian people, to have them surrender, to have them give up their resistance, to have them say, we accept the occupation or we leave, so that they can expand their colonial ambitions to take from the river to the sea and get rid of the Palestinian people or impose a massive apartheid system, which they are on the way to do now. So in this context, it's important to understand that the healthcare system is actually a sanctuary for a brutally tested civilian population. This morning, this morning, Israeli undercover agent went into El Akhli Hospital in Hebron on the West Bank. Undercover special forces speaking Arabic disguised as civilians. One of them, according to Al Jazeera this, today, 
dressed up like a pregnant woman. What they were about to was to capture one Palestinian who was treated for injuries. They took the staff hostage. They broke into the room of this injured Palestinian man. His cousin was with him. He was in the bathroom. He came out of the bathroom, was shot dead in the hospital by these undercover Israeli agents. And they took, of course, the injured man. Now, this disrespect for the institutions of sanctuary, of treatment, of healing, which the hospitals and the medical clinics have to be, it's only accepted when it's done by the state of Israel. Yeah, because a few months ago, uh, recently, the U.S. attack on Doctors Without Borders mm. Hospital on Kunduz got a lot of attention. <laughs> and eventually, President Obama was forced to apologize mm -hmm. for the attack, which killed MSF staff members and also some patients. But the horrors of what has happened and takes place and what happened last summer in Gaza did not generate the same level of outrage. How do you explain this as someone who goes there and comes back with all these witness report mm -hmm. testimonies and photographs? How do you explain this double standard? Well, first of all, the U.S. attack on the hospital in Afghanistan was shameless and it was criminal. It really deserved an apology and a, a, a very, very, very harsh investigation. And it's a war crime. But mm. this is one hospital, and it's staffed with recognized Western organization, MSF. There was no outcry. Why? I don't know. Probably because of this impunity, this massive impunity that the Israeli forces enjoy because of the support from the United States. Now, more than 50% of the hospitals in Gaza, 60% of the clinics were more or less damaged. More than 20 health workers were killed, 47 ambulances destroyed. This was a massive attack from the governmental Israeli army on the Palestinian healthcare system, which should be protected. I daily asked the ICRC representatives to put up uniformed ICRC cars outside the hospitals in Gaza with a Red Cross flag on to signal to the Israelis that these are protected civilian hospitals. They denied they wouldn't do it, probably because, I don't know, maybe they were under control of the Israeli army. This impunity goes through all layers of war crimes that Israelis are perpetrating. The attacks on children, the attacks on schools, the attacks on the civilian structures like water pipelines, sewage system, the attacks on civilian uh, residential areas, the attacks on civilian people, the attacks on hospital ambulances, etc. The massive siege of Gaza, which is collective punishment, which is against the Geneva Convention, all of these atrocities go unnoticed because Israel doesn't have to pay attention because they have the support of the U.S. government, the U.S. president. I think that is the closest you get. And the dispossession of the Palestinian people is now attaining more and more attention at a global scale. And good people all over the world, also in the United States, are standing up like the votes now in the labor unions in the U.S. to join the BDS, like the blockade of the harbor in San Francisco by brave activists who stopped the unloading of Israeli cargo ships. People are saying enough is enough now. We have to have an end to the occupation. We demand boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel, peaceful democratic tools until the siege, the occupation and the apartheid system has an end 
and that there is justice for the Palestinian people. This is probably the most important moral, political and ethical challenge of our time. How did the last attack on Gaza changed you? I got this impression that you ended your book not on a so hopeful note. Um, you write, how do you see you are ready to leave Gaza? It's your last evening and you go to your hotel and then you empty your pocket. You write, they looked so fragile as they lie there, a few paltry disposable syringes, so helpless in the fight for life. Symbols of a well-intentioned kind of humanitarianism that eases pain but solves nothing. Has it been all for nothing? I don't think so. And what gives me hope is the Palestinian people themselves, the Palestinian health workers, my brothers and sisters in Shifa Hospital, in the ambulance services. They all possess this unyielding optimism, this unyielding stamina to stand tall, to not give up, to not leave their post, to not surrender. And I think more than ever before, I heard this from all the people I met, from Professor Sobiskaik to the janitor, to the mother who lost their child, to the paramedic. You know, they said, this is not Hamas, this is not Fatah, this is not Ramallah or Gaza. This is us, the Palestinian people. We are the resistance. We are the popular resistance and we all serve the same purpose to stand strong against the occupation and to not surrender to this brutal and unjust colonialism. That gives me hope. I admit that I was quite hopeless when I left. I had a, a feeling of shame and guilt. Uh, I didn't want to go. I was going to be exchanged with Eric. He was standing outside the gates mm -hmm. at Erez. Once I exited Erez, it turned out that they were not letting him in. I should never have left. I should have stayed the whole 51 days. So I felt shame. I have to admit that. I might have been quite hopeless by the end of the writing of the book. Because what horrific tragedy that you were witnessing day in, day out. Well, I think most of all because of this total impunity that nobody lifted their voices in any Western government, be it in EU or in Norway or in Sweden or in the United States. I mean, these atrocities were broadcasted every minute of the day, not in mainstream American media because they show only lies, but in European media. There was no lack of access to the realities on the ground. And during the same weeks, your government, the US government, the European governments, the EU delivered sanctions cards around the clock to Russia because of what was going on in Ukraine. Trade sanctions, political sanctions, economical sanctions, but not a single sanction against Israel during the most bloody attack on the Palestinian people since 1967. But then you have to add that the last chapter of the book, of my book, is written by Mohammed Umar, Omar, my brother and my good friend and very fine journalist. And what is the title of that? It is Every Night Has a Morning. And I was extremely moved when I asked him to write the postscript. And I said the title of the book is Night in Gaza. And he said immediately, then I know what the title of the postscript mm -hmm. is. That's why I allowed myself to be a little bit uh, sort of down by the end of my writing because I knew that Muhammad Umar would lift the spirits through his postscript, and he does. 
And you also write, all the suffering and destruction I have witnessed in Gaza is what is known in disaster medicine as a purely man-made catastrophe. The occupation, bombardment, siege, destruction, discrimination, and oppression are all intentional policies. No doctor or health worker and no medical system, no matter how good, could dry the torrents of blood running from the Israeli war machine. And then you continue, do not send medicine, bandages, or field hospitals. Do not say any more words. Do not put victims and oppressors on the same level and the occupiers and those they occupy. Is this your critique or reflection on the limits of humanitarian work and it is not enough to just go and help Palestinians, with all good intentions, to survive the current catastrophe they're living under. Well, I'm not advising people what they should but do. But I'm just trying but to understand me, your mindset. Me, yeah. For me, there is a clear limit to humanitarianism. We might, I might paradoxically be part of the problem because I alleviate the pain of the occupation. Of course. Look at the UN system. The UN system is in, in many ways administering the occupation on behalf of Israel for the refugees. Look at the PA. They are instrumental for the occupiers to uh, keep track of the, the population through the security forces and so on and so forth. And of course, a medical humanitarian worker might well be seen as, as morphine for a cancer patient in a sense that you are not uh, addressing the root cause, which is the occupation and the siege. So my prescription as a medical doctor is very clear. It's not syringes and more drugs. It is number one, lift the siege. Number two, stop the repetitious bombardment of Gaza. Number three, end the occupation of Palestine. And number four, end Israeli apartheid against the Palestinian people. That is the only medical solution to this far overdue medical problem for the Palestinian people that has lasted for soon 70 years now. The occupation, that's the core of the problem. Dr. Mats Gilbert is a medical doctor at the University Hospital of North Norway. Since 1981, he has been going regularly to Palestine as a teacher and emergency care doctor at Gaza's Al-Shifa Hospital. His new book, Night in Gaza, contains photographs documenting the horrors of Israel's 51-day military assault on Gaza in the summer of 2014. For a status, I am Malihe Razozan. Please join us again for another edition of A Status. <laughs> <laughs>